comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The world we know is gone. No internet, no GPS, no text messages, no podcasts. In a world ruled by the dead, we are finally forced to start living. Everybody and welcome to episode 103 of the Walking Dead TV podcast. I'm Jordan from Jersey, aka Dr. Esquire, and I'm joined tonight by none other than Mr. Apache Chef himself, Jim Dietz. How you doing, Jim? I'm just swell. How are you, Jordan? I'm doing well. Unfortunately, the rest of the guys cannot be here tonight. We've got other commitments. One guy's sick. Uh, one guy's computer exploded. So there's all kinds of reasons why it's just Jim and I tonight. But we think it might lead to an interesting episode because here's the thing. Spoilers right now. Jim didn't like this episode, and I did. So we're going to have ourselves a little Walking Dead TV crossfire episode. Yeah, this this episode reminded me of that uh, speech that Randall Graves gives in Clerks 2 about all the walking in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and see, it reminded me of The Walking Dead, so we disagree. But I guess walking does in, is in the title, so that, that I, was, I was warned. <laughs> This episode was directed by Michael Uppendahl and written by Nicole Beatty, and it aired uh, the other night on AMC. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, uh, Jim and I, and I was saying I really enjoy what they've been doing this season with the episode titles. Um, we've already pointed it out that uh, episodes two through five all started with the letter I which gave them a nice theme. And not to spoil anything about next week's episode, but this week's episode is Live Bait, and next week's episode has a title that rhymes and is in the same cadence as uh, this week's episode title. So I like how they're theming them. That's something the show has never really done before. It shows some thought. It's a very uh, AMC thing to do, though. I know Breaking Bad would do that a lot. They'd have episodes like Cats in the Bag, and then the next episode would be And the Bag's in the River, or, you know, half measure and full measure, a lot of things like that that have fun with the title. So it's 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 cool to see Walking Dead getting on that same uh, same fun ride. Well, like I said, it's, it's cool that they put a little thought to it, you know? Right, exactly. Um, we, you know, like, like the, I remember the last time, speaking of Breaking Bad again, the last episode of Felina, there were so many different ways that could be interpreted because they thought about it, you know? Right. So, Jim, before we even talk about this week's episode, let's talk a bit about the governor in general, because I know opinions on the governor between us hosts, the listeners, and various other Walking Dead viewers out there differ wildly. Some people love the character, some people hate the character, some people love them in the comics but hate him in the show, or vice versa. What are your feelings about the governor aside from this episode? Like, everything we've seen on him in the show, and you, of course, have read the comics, what did you bring to the table in terms of your thoughts towards... Um, the man who would be the governor. 
Well, I think I'd preface it first by saying that I kind of look at the the, the comic book universe and the TV show universe as two separate entities. You know, uh, if you're a comic book geek, kind of like Earth One and Earth Two and the DC continuity, or you know, the regular Marvel Six One Six or the Ultimate Universe, like they're similar but not the same. And so, you know, the, I kind of look at the same way the governor as a character. I look at him as two different characters. There's the governor in the comic, who's very much like you know a much taller Danny Trejo, and the governor on the TV. Uh, who you know David Mor- Morrissey has been playing. So the the governor in the book, I always I always thought was a great character. And I thought that was a great story arc in the book, and I love I like David Morrissey's portrayal uh, of the governor on the television show too. I just thought that this episode was kind of a little obvious in, in its goal and trying to like you know bring some redemptive qualities to that character after we saw him mercilessly gun down two dozen people uh, at the end of last season. So I, I just thought that was kind of it was kind of obvious what they were trying to do and where you know oh well they're trying to humanize him and make us you know sympathize with him again uh, I just thought it was kind of an, an obvious mo- move on their part but as far as the governor overall as a character on the show I really liked the, this version and this kind of riff on the original character very different from the comic book version but yet very interesting and I think David Morrissey's a very interesting actor and I like even even though I didn't like the motive and and some of the writing of this episode I did like his performance in it. So. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and this is not an opinion I share, but I've read a lot of people saying that where the governor left off last season was, you know, mustache twirling cartoon character, that he wasn't sustainable as a television show character, even as a villain, not in a show that's as serious, maybe in, you know, uh, Inspector Gadget or something, it might work with that level of cartoon villainy, but not in in The Walking Dead. And uh, while I don't know that I agree with that, I, I would ask you, do you think that an episode like this, even if you think it's obvious what they were trying to do and why they did it. Do you think it was necessary? Because a lot of the reviews I've read said, yeah, maybe it wasn't the best episode ever, but it was definitely necessary to make this a sustainable character on the show after what we saw last season. I didn't really see that mustache twirling aspect. I just kind of saw him as as a person who had been broken and kind of psychotic after a lot of trauma. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I, I see what they're trying to do to the character. They're trying to give him a little more depth. They're trying to give him a little more of a sympathetic edge. Um, you know, and I, I, I can appreciate that and everything, but I don't know if, if personally, I think that's either appropriate or believable at this point. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think that was kind of the point of some of the reviews I'd read in that, you know, it's, it's almost inappropriate, but it has to be because the, the old version that we had from the end of last season wouldn't work on a show for more than an episode or two. He, he would just be ridiculous. I guess that's a valid point, but I mean, there are other ways to, you know, give more depth and more gravitas to the character than that. And that's certainly fair enough. I mean, I don't disagree with you. Well, so what do you say we talk about this episode in particular, Jim? Sounds good. So last week on The Walking Dead, we ended the episode with a surprise appearance by the governor. But we don't pick up where we left off in this episode. Instead, we head back all the way to the end of last season to moments after the governor had gunned down just about everybody in his group. In fact, I think it might have been reused footage, at least for a few seconds. I'm not 100% sure, though. But the governor, uh, Martinez and Schumpert, they get into the governor's truck and they head off into the wilderness. 
and then we cut to later on that night where we see the scene that had been shown during Talking Dead last week and was the kind of general promo for the episode, which is the governor sitting in front of the campfire and the female zombie coming up to him, and he he doesn't even pay it any mind. The zombie walks through the fire, falls over, is engulfed in flames, and continues to crawl through towards the governor. And uh, that's where all the times we'd seen the scene before cut off, but this time we see that the governor does not react at all, and uh, Martinez walks over and shoots the zombie in the head, kind of gives the governor a disgusted look, and then he goes back about his business. It's a good scene, and it definitely you start to see that you know Martinez and and and, Sh- and Schimpert are not comfortable in his company anymore. You know, what I mean, they're not. I don't know. It doesn't seem like they. You know, I mean, they end up leaving the next. You know, while he's asleep or whatever. But I mean, in that scene, you kind of see you know that they're not uh, not too keen on him. <laughs> and did you recognize where their campsite was? No, I didn't. That was where the governor and his men gunned down the national guardsmen way back last season. Oh. So it was kind of a cool return to a previous uh, location. But so like you said, the next morning, the guys, uh, Martinez and Schumpert, they abandon the governor and he's left to fend for himself. So he drives back to Woodbury uh, and there's walkers everywhere. Uh, But he, again, pays them no mind, walks into town, uh, grabs a few belongings and burns the town to the ground, which answers that uh, that question that people had had, which was, why didn't everybody go back to the to Woodbury? Well, Woodbury doesn't exist anymore, except as a pile of ash. Do you think it was a little late answering that question, or should we have gotten that information much earlier? Like, ever since Woodbury burned down, we've been stuck here at the prison. I'm just um, Strategically, the prison's a better spot. It really is, if you think about it. I mean, even the way they had Woodbury blocked off or whatever, I mean, it takes a lot more maintenance to keep blocked off and... and, and you know, keep keep everything short up than the prison was. I didn't really, that question didn't even come into my mind as to whether they you know wish to go back to Woodbury or not. I thought maybe they might go try to go back this season to try to get supplies or something. But um, other than that, no, I, I, I hadn't really thought about that. And we get this great the cliche scene that we've seen in a million movies of the guy walking out of the house as it burns down and not turning back. I've seen that in like at least twenty movies I can think of. You know. Although usually it's an explosion. At least this time it was yeah. just a burning building. And usually it's Denzel Washington. <laughs> he was there, but he was just to the left of the governor. You had to really squint to see him. Oh, okay. So that is the end of the pre credit sequence, our cold open. When we come back from the credits, if I remember correctly, all of a sudden we have a bit of a voiceover. And it's the governor talking to a woman. We don't see who he's talking to, but we basically get the story of what happened to the governor for the next two months or so as he just wandered through the wilderness and wandered through streets and cities and the woods. He His hair grew out. He grew a terrible fake beard. Um, <laughs> you could really see the spirit gum whenever it was in the light. I thought in the dark it looked fine, I guess, as a, as a gross hobo beard, but in the daytime didn't really work for me. But like you said earlier, Jim, the governor is just broken. He's not even fighting back against zombies. He's barely barely turning to get out of their way when they lunge for him and just, you know, the one time we see him encounter a zombie, it just, it walks up to him, he turns a little bit out of the way, it lunges for him, and it lands on the ground, and he just keeps on walking. Yeah, I mean, he he was kind of broken before this, and now that he's lost everything that he, he had that, you know, gave him meaning or gave him status in his own mind or whatever, he's even more, more so, I think. And he looks kind of like uh, a homeless snake Pliskin. Um, he, he does not really look like the governor anymore. He looks I thought much, you were dead. He looks much more like the pirate that he jokingly claims to be later on in the episode. Hmm. So after several months of just, like we said, barely surviving the elements, he uh, he 
comes across this uh, this house, kind of in the middle of nowhere, it seemed. You don't really see a lot of the surrounding area, but it, it doesn't look to be in a big town. Uh, there's, a, there's a food truck parked out front, and the governor collapses on the ground. But as he does, he sees a, a young woman standing in one of the upper windows of a building, and that gives him at least enough to go on to go inside the building and see what he can find. So he goes inside the building, and inside he finds the, is it Chambler or Chambler family? Wikipedia says C-H-A-M-B-L-E-R. I don't know if I remember hearing their last name said in the episode, though. I don't think, I don't know if they said the last name or not, but I think if it is, it's Chambler. All right, so the Chambler family we're going with until proven otherwise. Uh, And that consists of two sisters, Lily and Tara, Lily's daughter Megan, and the sister's dad, David. And at first, they hold the governor at gunpoint, but he hands over his gun, and eventually they come to a detente, and he doesn't ever pose any real threat to them, at least not that's, you know, clearly visible, but he's just kind of quiet and reserved and, and uh, like we keep saying, broken, and really the biggest problem they have with him is trying to get him to answer questions, because he mostly just sits there comatose. I kept expecting all through this entire episode for him to jump up and kill them all at any moment. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. But these were the people he was talking to in the voiceover, and, and what he was telling them was the town he had come from had uh, the man in charge went kind of loopy and did a lot of bad things, and he had to get out of there. You know, speaking of himself, but in the third person, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't cop to being that particular man in charge. Instead, he tells them that his name is Brian Harriet, which was a name that was painted on the side of a barn that he had passed while walking. It was uh, painted a whole bunch of times. And uh, we will, in our spoiler section of uh, of this episode, when we talk about next week's episode, in there we will mention why the name Brian Harriet, or at least the name Brian, is important, because it was asked about on the Facebook group, but because it involves the Walking Dead prose novels, um, we don't want to spoil anyone who has not read them yet, so we'll put that in the end. But uh, it does have meaning other than just, it was a name he happened to see uh, painted a bunch of times on the side of a barn in the middle of nowhere. It is interesting how the little details from the novels and, and things kind of play into the, the television show. So Brian, as the governor is going by now, he uh, he takes up residence across the hall from the Chamber family. And uh, they try to give him food. He reluctantly accepts it, but then throws it out the window. And instead he subsists on, I believe it was sardines or cat food, something in a little can. Yeah, he threw away SpaghettiOs, man. That's like caviar for post-apocalypse. You know what I mean? I kind of... <laughs> Kind of didn't uh, didn't uh, sit well with me. It kind of reminded me of the time the episode where they wouldn't eat the dog food even though they were starving. You know what I mean? Well, that's kind of what I thought it was a callback to was because I saw other people call it uh, sardines, but I thought it was cat food or dog food, and I thought they were drawing a very uh, specific line between those two scenes that hmm. he was to the level where he would eat cat food or dog food, whereas Rick was not to that level back at the beginning of last season. It did remind me of it. I didn't think it was a direct callback then. Well, uh, it was my assumption, but if it wasn't actually animal food and instead it was sardines, which arguably are human food, um, it's it's simply all in my head. Arguably. (laughs) (laughs) But he eventually goes back over to the Shambler's apartment and he returns the plate that they had given him with the food. They invite him inside. He sits down. Um, He watches young Megan and her grandfather David playing a makeshift uh, game of backgammon. And we kind of learn a little bit about this family. Uh, David is on oxygen. Um, Later we'll find out he has, I believe it was stage four lung cancer, but I don't remember if it was specifically lung cancer, um, although that would make sense with the oxygen tank. And that Megan has not really talked for a long period of time. She'll kind of 
grunt or occasionally give a yes or a no, but aside from that, she doesn't talk. She writes things down. I just, you know, I, I, I like, I, like I said before, I understand they're trying to warm us up to the character and make us realize that he, you know, was a, is, is has redemptive qualities or whatever. But I just kept remembering like what he had come from. You know, what I mean, it's kind of. Again, when I was sitting there through the entire episode thinking he was going to jump in any moment and kill everybody and take all their stuff, you know, I just didn't, it didn't ever come across to me at one point, hey, you know, he's, he's actually a pretty good guy, you know, um, <laughs> which is, which is, I think, you know, some, some of what they're going for. It's kind of the same road that they were taking with Shane. I mean, Shane, you know, did some pretty dastardly things and was kind of, kind of a d- but um, you know, he also had good qualities, and he, you know, he meant well in a lot of his, you know, his motives were good in a lot of, a lot of cases. You know. Well, I mean, it really comes down to: Do you believe that human beings are basically good, basically evil, or just basically human, and that they sometimes do good things and sometimes do bad things? Right. And I guess your what you come to the table with in terms of a point of view on that subject is going to color your impression of the episode. For me. I totally buy that he's not a terrible monster, but that he was a person who did everything he could do to protect his town and his people. And yes, did he make some terrible decisions? Absolutely. And at one point he snapped and murdered a bunch of people, which, you know, in today's time, I would hope he would spend the rest of his life in prison. But in the post-apocalypse, you know, that's not going to happen. So what do you do? You you pay some type of penance. What's enough, enough penance, though, for murdering 30 people or however many people it was is is wandering around in a daze for three months enough. I don't know. You know, uh, who, who am I to say, but at a certain point, like, you know, that, you know, he's, he's flipped. He, you know, he, he broke bad, if you will, not to reference breaking bad again, but he did. Can he come back from that? And I think that's kind of what this episode is trying to ask. Whether it gives us a an answer of that or not, I don't know. And I think, quite honestly, we'll find out more of that next week's episode. I, I feel kind of strange talking just about this episode by itself because it feels like it's a part one of two. Hmm. But, you know, from this episode, it didn't bother me. Interesting. Now, maybe when I see the conclusion next week, <laughs> not you know, not the conclusion, but the second half of this two-parter, Will I still buy it? Who knows? Maybe maybe the, once I see the end, I'll be like, nah, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't work. But so far, it doesn't bother me. Like I said, I, I see what they're going for. It just seems kind of ham-handed to me, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's fair enough. So the governor continues to kind of not really buddy up to this family, but get closer and closer to them slowly over time. And eventually, David, uh, the grandfather, asked the governor to go upstairs in the apartment building to one of his old friend's apartments because there's a really nice set of backgammon up there. The grandfather can't get it, and uh, there are zombies up there, and it's it's made pretty clear early on that the two sisters aren't particularly effective at killing the zombies. They don't even understand that, you know, you have to shoot them in the head. They have this truck of food because the, the grandfather was a truck driver and had this box truck full of canned food, so they haven't had to go out into the world They've basically survived just because they happen to have a lot of supplies and never left. That was something else I, I had a problem with. I mean, I, and it was the same deal that I had uh, with the, the couple that uh, Carolyn and uh, and Rick came across, is that they had, you know, survived this long without gathering basic zombie survival skills. You know what I mean? Well, I, mean, but they, I mean, the other couple had made it clear that they had been with groups all the time, so they might have had other skills that they brought. They might just not have been the fighters. You know, so that I can buy, I mean, and this I can buy too, but, 
you know, it's not like there was a lot of zombies out there in the country banging down their door. There was just a, you know, a couple old people. in Herschel's the place was out in the country and they seemed to get overrun quite often. Yeah, but they were also out there making noise. They had generators and lights and gunshots going off constantly. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just you know, four people in an apartment. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so the governor goes upstairs to get it. He also finds uh, Bill, the old war buddy, Mr. Bill Jenkins, uh, zombified up there. Mr. Jenkins was a double amputee from the knees down. And I really liked the zombie effect on this particular zombie because it appeared that Mr. Jenkins had uh, wheeled himself over to the tub and shot himself in there. So he has no legs and the zombie's kind of trapped in the tub. And you can see how it's basically it's the front of its face is just shattered over time from the zombie constantly banging into the ceramic of the tub over and over and over again. It was really gross looking and disturbing. But the, the governor eventually puts that zombie out of its misery. That's my zombie kill of the week, by the way. I can buy that. Although there was another pretty cool one later on, but we'll get to that. The governor also takes that man's gun and the few rounds of ammo he finds in there. So he has a backup because the uh, Shepard family still has his gun and ammo. And then he brings back the game of backgammon to the Shepard's apartment and he gives them the game and he leaves. Uh, and that, when he goes back to his apartment, we see that he, he managed to salvage the picture of himself, his wife and his daughter from Woodbury. Uh, the picture has not really survived the journey particularly well. It's it's yellowed and full of cracks, but he's got it with him. And he falls asleep with it next to him, which means the next morning when Lily comes by to give the governor his gun back, uh, she notices the picture there on the, the side. And she doesn't really bring it up, but she does notice it. And he, as soon as he wakes up and sees her there, he grabs it and he hides it. And when, when she tries to give him his gun back, he tells her, you know, keep it. And he, he tells her, you know, I found this gun upstairs, so I'll, I'll be fine. You need the gun more than I do. And uh, Lily asks him, you know, before you go, can you do us one more favor? She says, you know, my dad has stage four lung cancer and the oxygen tanks we have are nearly empty. Apparently, I, I believe she said she worked as a nurse or something like that. And so she, when, the, you know, the whole world went to hell, she grabbed a whole bunch of tanks and brought them home with her. And they've lasted them till now, but they're running low. Um, and she tells him that there's a nursing home nearby, and uh, she asks him if he can go there and grab one or two bottles for them. So the governor makes his way to the uh, to the old folks' home, and he encounters a couple walkers, but he, you know, c- continually through this episode, mostly just avoids them. He'll walk around them, he'll close the doors, you know, between them and him so he doesn't have to deal with them, but he's mostly nonviolent towards the zombies whenever possible in this episode. It was very noticeable, too, I mean, especially after all the violence he's dealt you know, over the the course of the episodes in this this whole episode, I mean, it's more a uh, uh, strategy of avoidance, as you were saying. Right. So he eventually finds a cart full of oxygen tanks, or nearly full, and he tries to push it out of there, but walkers keep swarming him, and he, he fights a few of them, and eventually he just grabs two oxygen tanks, one in each hand, and he uh, runs back to the apartment building and gives them to the Champers. So he had a minor injury during this, just a, a scrape to his forehead, but... Uh, Lily goes to clean him up, and uh, when she's there, young Megan comes in. Lily goes to get some more supplies to clean the wound, and she lets Megan stay there and watch the governor while she goes back to the apartment. And Megan asks the governor how he got the eye patch, and I believe these are the first words she says in the episode, aside from yes or no, very simple stuff like that. And uh, he laughs, and he claims that he was a pirate before all this went down, and they, they have a good laugh at that. I mean, we, see, we also see the obvious parallel here between you know, the daughter the zombie daughter he had, Penny, 
and this girl Megan. I mean, he's obviously wanting to bond with her because of that, you know. And, and we see and this scene is where we really—I thought we really saw that mo- uh, most, you know. We started to see that at any rate. Absolutely, and uh, someone even pointed out on the pirate front that the blanket he's laying on or the pillow he's laying on in the episode, there's a parrot on the pillow, and the way it's lined up, it's right perched on his shoulder, which I thought was pretty funny. So him with his eye patch and a parrot on his shoulder and a big beard and crazy hair, he really does look like uh, Captain Hook or something like that. So the governor eventually tells Megan the truth, but he tells you, know, I'll only tell you if you don't tell anyone, and he gives her pretty much what happened, at least from his point of view, which was that he loves someone very much, uh, someone wanted to hurt the person he loved, so he tried to protect the person he loved. He ended up getting hurt, and so did the person he loved. You know, it's, it is truthful. That is exactly what happened, at least from his point of view. And Megan understands the story, and they kind of bond over that, like you were saying. So even though he said he was going to leave, uh, since they bond a little bit, he stays around. Um, and I think the next time we see them, it's it's sometime later. He's shaved. He's cut his hair. He's looking back back a little bit more like his old Philip self, except he's got an eye patch now. Well, it was good too because that fake beard was distracting. You were right. <laughs> At least in the daylight, yes. Yeah. During the nighttime, again, fine. Daylight, no, no. It was just bad. The hair was fine. The hair didn't bother me, but the uh, the beard was very spirit gummy. <laughs> Uh, so next time we see him, he's all cleaned up and he's playing chess with Megan. He's teaching her how to play chess and, uh, they have a nice little conversation about what the different pieces do. And we have some very clear, uh, allusions to, you know, the pawns are just pawns, but you know, if you can kill the King, then you win the game. And, uh, Megan draws an eye patch on the governor's King and she points out that they look just like each other, which gets a laugh, but of course it's also very symbolic. Mm-hmm. And in the background of the scene, we can see that David is not doing particularly well. He's kind of spending his last few moments with his daughters. And eventually, uh, the daughters come and get the governor, and uh, they, they tell him that their dad has passed away, and they want to say their goodbyes. But it's made clear that he actually passed away a little bit previous to when they actually came and got the governor. Um, so even though he tells them they really need to get out and let him you know deal with this, uh, they, they don't. The dad reanimates, he grabs the younger daughter, the governor has to bash his face in with the oxygen tank that the governor had gone and rescued from the nursing home just, uh, you know, a month or so earlier, or a couple months earlier, we don't know exactly how long, and uh, that was my contender for possible alternate zombie kill of the week, although there was also, again, some more later that were really cool, but the the oxygen bottle to the head, the irony of the life-giving implement killing the zombie, I thought was pretty cool. Well, also the dichotomy of, of Herschel, who is, like, all about making sure that these people, when they reanimate, or when they're, you know, killed again, no one sees them. You know, and right, then yeah. him doing, the, you know, killing their own father in right in front of them, you know. Kind of the, Although the I don't think he wanted to do. No, that. no, I'm I mean, just saying the way it played out is kind of a um, is kind of a mirror of that. You know, what I mean, in kind of the, the opposite way. You know, I mean the the he in the episode with Herschel last week, he was very very uh, insistent upon you know wheeling those people out and making sure that when they reanimated and he killed them, that the other people didn't see. Here, these people, these girls have to watch him as he, I mean, again, he's not like, hey, come in here and watch this, you need to see this or whatever, you know, Carol. Want to see something cool? Yeah. <laughs> Ain't it cool? But, um. It's like a bloody water balloon, man. But, I mean, you know, he, you know, he does it in front of them rather than, you know, keeping what they do secret. So, later we see the governor burying David. 
Um, he also burns the photo of his wife and daughter. He's kind of cutting off his ties to that old life. And that night he goes to the Chamblers to say goodbye, but Lily insists that he stays, and uh, the governor says they can't go with him, but Lily reveals that she saw the photo of the family, and she says, you know, even though we aren't a part of your old family, you can become a part of ours. And the next time we see them, they are packing up that food truck and they're heading out into the world, abandoning their previous life. And that night, they're all asleep in the back of the box truck when uh, the governor and Lily decide that that's a really good time to get the freak on. Um, Don't get me wrong, I understand, but there are sleeping children or a sleeping child just a few feet away. um, And I don't think it's got the best shocks in a a, uh, big box trucks like that, but... Hey, post-apocalypse, I guess, right? Problematic, but not impossible. Right. Um, yeah, it seems like all the villains on this show get laid. So, Just like in real life, man. <laughs> Just like in real life, yeah. <laughs> Sometime later, the truck breaks down and they have to continue on foot. They're, they're walking down the road at some later date, uh, carrying their bags on their back when Tara injures her leg after revealing that she is gay, which I believe is the first openly gay character on The Walking Dead, which it's about damn time, I'd say. It's season four, but uh, hey, at least we have one now. Past time, I'd say. Yeah, and no, no doubt, but uh, better late than never, I guess. Uh, so they're, they're trucking down the road when all of a sudden they come, across, uh, come around a turn and they see a whole bunch of zombies, so the governor ushers them into the woods. Um, at first, Megan kind of freezes in, in, in terror and won't move, but the governor motions to her, and eventually their bond kicks in. Um, even though she saw him kill her grandfather, which had kind of separated them for a bit, she runs into his arms, and the four of them run into the woods. They run, they run, they run, until the governor and Megan fall into a pit, at, at which point I went, wait a second, that's a very familiar-looking pit. There's no way it's the same one. But uh, before we can figure out if it is indeed the same pit we've seen zombies in before, the governor has to kill a couple zombies, kills one of them Raincore style by putting a bone in its mouth and ripping the top of its head off, which I thought was awesome. He you know, punches through one's head. He, I think there's three of them he kills in total. But again, some really nice close-up, mano mano zombie kills. Bare, barehanded, too. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the thing that really got me. Barehanded, no weapon, nothing. Just, just a bone. Yeah, And uh, he grabs Megan after the zombies are dead and calling back to a line earlier in the episode, he tells her everything's going to be fine and, you know, crosses his heart and hopes to die. And at that moment, we look over the ridge of the very familiar looking pit and we see who but Martinez standing there with a machine gun. And that is where we end the episode. And it should be noted that during the whole mano y mano fight with the zombies in the pit, you can hear machine gun fire the whole time, which was really confusing me. My sister was sitting there and watching this episode like, who is shooting a machine gun right now? It it became very clear as as we end the episode and see a whole bunch of people apparently led by Martinez, but that's just a guess at this point, um, who who save uh, Lily and Tara and maybe save the governor and Megan, we don't really know yet because the episode ends there. But so that is the end. Like I already said, I actually quite liked this. Jim, as you've already pointed out, you really didn't. But uh, before we get into finding out what everybody else thought about this episode, what do you say we thank our sponsor? Sounds good to me. Alrighty. 
Our sponsor for this episode is DCBService.com. Uh, that's DCBService.com, direct comic book service. And what they do is they offer comics, graphic novels, and all of your geek-related paraphernalia at insanely discounted prices, 30 40 50 sometimes 60% off. Uh, if you are a fan of The Walking Dead show, and I imagine you would be because you're listening to a podcast about it, you will find a plethora, yes, I use that word, a plethora of great stuff at DCBService.com uh, that uh, will get you in tune with The Walking Dead, including The Walking Dead comics, The Walking Dead graphic novels, hardbound editions, the giant compendiums, which is uh, something I've picked up, uh, the giant phone book-sized compendiums with 48 issues in each Um all those, all those versions of the comic book version of The Walking Dead, plus your action figures, uh, t-shirts, hoodies, uh, you name it, they have it there. If it's geek-related, uh, they have it. And you also, even if, if you've gone digital, like a lot of us have with comics, uh, all of your purchases through DCB Service on Comixology earn you a uh, 10% discount as well. So you want to definitely uh, take advantage of that. Also, if you're a first-time customer at DCB Service, or you haven't ordered anything from them in a year, uh, use the code WD. Eight and get a another eight percent off your uh, off of your order. That's uh, another eight percent off their insane, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent discounts. Often cheaper than Amazon. Often cheaper than a lot of other places you'd look. Uh, you definitely want to check them out. They've been a proud sponsor of our show for a long time, and uh, we are happy to have them aboard. DCBService.com. So, Jim, even though you said you didn't particularly care for this episode, I'm curious, what is your Buster rating for this episode? I give this a three point five. Which for me is low because most uh, every episode so far in the reign of Gimple has been a four or four point five for me. The three point five is is mainly based on the, the the performance of David Morrissey in this episode. He really, as much as I kind of find the approach you know to make the governor more likable a little a little obvious, he really uh, is doing his best to sell it, and he really is acting very well. I, I really appreciate his craft in this. So as you know, as much as I mark off for for what's going on, I, I mark up for for his performance in it. So my Buster rating for this episode three point five. I, on the other hand, will give it a four point seven five. Not quite a perfect score. There is a few things here and there, like the really bad uh, fake beard and and some pacing issues. I thought uh, throughout the episode that that ding it a little bit. But here's what I really loved about this episode, right? I've read the comic, Jim, you've read the comic, and we don't want to spoil the comic for anybody who hasn't read it, but the governor is a major player for at least a storyline or two in the comic. Unlike in the show, where he's introduced in a way where you go, is this guy a good guy, is he a bad guy, and it very become, very quickly turns out that he's got some, you know, skeletons in his closet. In the comic, from the moment you see him, you can pretty much tell this guy is bad news. And he just becomes more and more evil and crazy as it goes along until, I won't spoil the end of the story, but let's just say in the comics, he's no longer in the story. Um, And there's, of course, many ways that that could happen, but uh, he's there for his story and then he's no longer there. But the point is, that whole time, he's crazy pants evil, just the whole time, and just gets more evil and more crazy as the story goes on. In the show, I really liked that we didn't start with that. I liked that we started way back last season with a guy who was much more gray, who had his good moments, who had his bad moments, and eventually, through a fairly effective character progression, became more evil, more dark, more willing to toe that line, and eventually more and more crazy as he tried to do things and failed, and as things were done to him. That said, I don't know how sustainable that character is as a long-term villain, but 
What I do know is I've seen that version of the character already. I've seen the crazy, evil, maniacal, mustache-twirling villain already in the comics, and that was awesome. But a version of this character that starts off gray, goes much more dark, and now they're trying to buy back his gray, that's a version I haven't seen before. So my score and my thoughts on this episode, and granted, like I said before, I really want to see the next one before I really commit to how I felt about it, but... I've never seen this version of the governor before where he might be brought back to the light side. You know, you don't see that too often in in things. Now, granted, do I think he survives a season? No, not a chance in hell. But I'll be interested to see if maybe he can die on the side of the angels. You know, it's not something you see very often in shows like this. You'll see characters go from good to evil, but evil back to good? Not so much. And, And I think that... You know, even if it's a little bit clunky and getting there, kind of like how Aaron's talked about in previous episodes with, you know, I like where they got Karen or Carol. I don't know that I like how they got her there. I kind of feel the same way about the governor, although quite, quite frankly, quite honestly, I didn't hate how they got him there. I thought it was effective, the most effective as it could have been. No, but pretty darn solid. And I'm very interested to see where they go from here. I'm interested in that, too. I just I. I, like I said, I don't, uh, like you said, you know, you see where they're going with Carol and you appreciate that, but you don't like the way they're doing it. I kind of feel the same way with the governor. And, and I totally understand that. The only, the only real difference is I, I do buy how they're getting there at when, while you don't, which is totally legitimate on both sides. Nobody's right or wrong. But, uh, although I should say, since this is our crossfire episode, how dare you? You're crazy and lizard people and the Illuminati and you're just wrong. Chain, chain you ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> So we know very much what Jim and I think about this episode, but uh, what did our friend Aaron, who I believe at this time is uh, on safari in Africa, what did he think of the episode, Jim? He's actually on vacation in South Africa, so yeah, uh, we hope he's having a great time there. Uh, He sent me an email right before he left. Uh, Hey Jim, wanted to write a little email. I'm off exploring the wilds of Africa, but wanted to just provide my two cents. I give live bait three out of five busters. I was not a huge fan of this episode, even though I knew what it was trying to do for the governor. My problem had to do with not accepting this sort of redemption arc, seeing how the character went unforgivably crazy at the end of last season. That kind of echoes my sentiments as well. Uh, That said, if next week provides me with more to chew on as far as why he's back at the prison, I might be more okay with the setup. That's all I got. Now I must go back to running with gazelles and sticking my neck out for giraffes. Happy Thanksgivings all around in advance from Africa. Aaron. Oh, well, thank you, Aaron. Here's something interesting. They, they talked about this on Talking Dead, but it's not something that was exclusive to them. I've seen a lot of people discussing this. What if the governor is there at the end of last week's episode not to terrorize the prison, not to t- burn it to the ground, not to lure zombies in through the walls with, uh, with dead rats? What if he's there looking for asylum, if not for himself, at least for, you know, Lily and Tara and Megan? What if he's trying to save them from his old compatriots who are still just as bad as he was six, seven months ago? There's no way he's going to be feel like he could be accepted by Rick and his group. There's just no, it's not going to happen. But do you think um, he might go there to at least sue for their, you know, you know, sue for their protection? I think I think it's like the fruit of a poison tree thing. If they know that they're there with the government, they could be you know the Pope and and Mother Teresa and Betty Crocker, and they wouldn't accept them. You know what I mean? Okay, what if by that period in time, because we still don't know like how 
how far before that episode, this episode ended. It could still be two months difference. What if Lily and Tara are dead and it's just Megan and he just wants to protect her? Do you think that Rick and the group would accept a six, seven, eight-year-old little girl into the fold, even if she was provided by the governor? That I don't know. Um, I just feel like anything, any move the governor makes toward them, I think, is going to be something that they are going to be, you know, at best dubious of, and at at at, at worst, you know, incredibly rejecting of. You know what I mean? I don't really. I, I I see what you're saying. You know, maybe he's just looking for asylum for the girl, and and. You know that would that would go that might go a little further to you know bring him back in redemptive uh, into a redemptive light for the the um, the viewers of the show or whatever, but I just don't I don't see him being able to even talk to Rick. You know what I mean to tell him that much before Rick pulls out a gun and starts shooting at him. You know so. While, while I agree with you, I'd like to see the show prove us wrong. I'd like to see them, and granted, this has not been their strong suit so far, but this season has been better than past seasons. I'd like to see them find a way to make it make sense. And, you know, if they can do that, if they can surprise me, I would be super cool with that. I love surprises. I love being surprised, in a good way, anyway. In a good way. <laughs> We should also mention, even though we don't have emails from them, that Russ is a little bit more on your and Aaron's side, Jim, and Brad is once again on my side, which is really freaking me out, because normally we don't see eye to eye, but for the last couple <laughs> weeks we have. Uh, just, just proving that we are more or less the same person, only with different accents. We did, however, get another email uh, this week, which anyone can send us an email, comments at walkingdeadtv.com. We'd love to receive them and possibly read them on the show. And this email is from Heather, and she says, Hi, y'all, this is perfect. I so missed Shane last season because he added a complexity to the show they haven't had since, until now. The governor, of course, is on a completely different level than Shane was as far as evil and insanity, but they are similar in that they have reasons for being what they are. I am so happy that they are finally showing us the governor's human side, because I knew he had to have one after they showed the way he reacted when Michonne put Penny down last season. Just like I did with Shane, I can actually empathize with the governor, even in the face of the horrible things he's done. Of course, the bad things that have happened to him are no excuse for becoming a murderous freak, but at least we can see now that he is actually human and struggling with many complex emotions. They did a good job showing us that he's pretty much lost it since murdering his group, showing us that maybe the murderous freak actually might not be who he really is, but that he just snapped in that moment. He is dangerous, of course, because he has that tendency to snap quite frequently. Let's not forget the other horrible things he's done, like his interrogation of Maggie, murdering the military guys, etc. I'm not excusing his actions or Shane's, but I love how they allow us to become part of their conflict. We end up just as conflicted when we think about these characters. I just can't wait to see where this is going next, Heather. And thank you so much for your email, Heather. And yeah, she brings up some other things we hadn't mentioned about the governor, his treatment of Maggie in particular, um, even if he could find some way to convince Rick to let him into the prison, which again, unlikely, if Maggie's alive and I'm Maggie or Glenn, there's no way in hell that guy's coming in, in the gates. He's getting his head blown off. I agree. Um, again, unless they can find a way to really surprise us, which that would be a feat. Yes, indeed it would. Like, I just, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that anything that the governor would say that it would be something Rick Grimes would believe after all they've been through. Right. So what did our listeners on Facebook think this week, Jim? 
Well, we have a lot of, uh, we have a really lively Facebook group, if you're interested, uh, the Walking Dead TV podcast Facebook group. We have a lot of cool news items, a lot of great uh, people contribute, you know, thoughts, ideas, theories, and reviews of the show. Also, uh, it's a place where Aaron posts his in-depth reviews of the show, as well as the HHWLOD website, so it's an alternate place to catch those. Uh, uh, from our lively Facebook group, uh, Terry Bernard gives it four poundits out of five. Uh, Brian Arnold, four out of five pinky swears. Um, Susan Monk, 4.5 out of five other 48 days. Love that it was like a season two Lost episode. Jordan, you'd have to speak to that because I never watched Lost. And it contained a story that made me think of the governor's prequel books. Lost points for fire safety. He thought, tossed a lit fire out of the window. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think what she's saying about the Lost uh, reference anyway is in season two, you had an episode called The Other 48 Days, where basically it showed you the same amount of time period that the first season had taken up, which is 48 days, um, but showing you that those same events or those same days from the perspective of some other characters who weren't there in that first season. They were on another part of the island. So similar to what the governor did here, or what, what the show did here with the governor, showing you his point of view on, uh, you know, on those events. Everard Santa Maria gave it four walkers left lurking on your escape route out of five. If it weren't the governor, this would have been a fantastic episode. I just can't figure out what we're supposed to think. He's beyond redemption. He's not going to show up at the jail to make peace. Um, that's kind of how I feel about it, too, Everard. Um, Leslie Johnson, 4.75 out of five. Awesome episode. Uh, anyone else think he might have been taking the family to the prison? I think that's kind of the the, um, the conventional wisdom on that. Um, Brad Milo, our, our brother from another mother who couldn't make it this week because of his exploding computer. Uh, another fantastic episode on the on the Jordan side of this. A solid 4.5 busters uh, from me. Can I just go ahead and give David Morrissey an Emmy? I agree. I mean, his acting is really top-notch. Sarah Ann Howard, 4 out of 5 busters. Uh, 5 out of 5 from Susan Monk. Elisa Gonzalez, 5 out of 5 to Chris Hardwick. Uh, for going on to host Talking Dead after the passing of his father. Um, I, as a brief side note, we wanted to um, send our condolences to Chris Hardwick and his family. Evidently, the same uh, day they recorded the Talking Dead, he, he uh, his father had passed away, uh, which really speaks to his professionalism and, and, and level of uh, dedication. But uh, our, our sympathies go out to his family and everything. And that's just really, that's a tough one, for sure. Uh, Chris Barr gave it 3.5 out of 5. If the vans are rocking, don't come a-knockin'. Uh, Max So for 4 out of 5 sardines. Uh, 3.5 hideous beards out of 5 from Mary Terpecchia. Uh, has one Mac. 4 busters. Uh, a little slow at the beginning, but it was building. It gets an extra buster just for the chance that they took. Uh, Heather Campbell Finch. 4.5 walkers with walkers. <laughs> I love what they're doing here. Uh, Robert, Roger Austin. 4 spilled bowls of SpaghettiOs out of 5. Uh, Harold Turk. I'll give it 3 penny replacements only because the governor needed to kill the two women to make Megan his new daughter. Interesting. Mike Glicksman, four out of five. I went into this not looking forward to a governor-focused episode, but the moment he stuck his head out of the tent and realized he'd been abandoned, I knew it wasn't going to be anything like what I expected. Uh, Newt Knight gives a four out of five patch Adams. Uh, four out of five busters from Adam Fatah, a very good governor-centric episode. Um, Belinda Clark Ake, 4.5 oxygen tanks out of five uh, for making me riveted to an episode about a character that I hate. Uh, Brian Fuqua, uh, who sent us uh, a voicemail last week, two vandalized chess pieces out of five. I normally prefer character development episodes over action-packed ones, but there are so many moments in this one that left me scratching my head. Uh, 3.5 pound puppies from Christopher Levine. 
Uh, Rene Alvarado gives us one homeless-looking buster, and that's just for the last five minutes. I kept lolling and rewinding the zombie and then missed the governor right before he fell. Robert Nigro gave a 4.5 or 4.25 backgammon pieces out of 5. I didn't even read the comics or the Rise of the Governor books. I didn't even have time to watch The Walking Dead or read Aaron's review yet this week. So I'm really coming out this cold. At first I was confused and bored. And then halfway through the episode I saw a truly broken change governor and got super intrigued. Uh, if you'd like to join our Facebook group, as I said, it's uh, the Walking Dead TV Podcast Facebook group. Uh, just send us, um, just join the group and uh, join the discussion. There's a lot of it, and there's a lot of really cool uh, people with a lot of uh, different points of view about the show. And also, it's a good place, a good clearinghouse for a lot of uh, funny memes and, and news items about the show and uh, and uh, things like that. So, the Walking Dead TV Podcast Facebook group, join us. Absolutely. We're almost up to 500 members. I think uh, what we'll do at 500 is we'll give away a prize. What do you say, Jordan? Sounds good to me. Whoever the 500th member is, I will give... One of your children. No. Um, <laughs> I know. I have a hardbound edition of The Walking Dead covers from the first 50 issues of The Walking Dead. Uh, by The covers uh, for all the comics. And uh, it's a nice, beautiful hardbound edition. Even if you haven't read the comics, the covers are really cool zombie art. We will give that away to the 500th. Uh, Walking Dead TV Podcast Facebook group member. How about that? That is an awesome prize. Sounds good. Well, Jim, do we have anything else to say about this episode before we close it out and head into spoilery look-ahead-at-next-week territory? I don't think so, Jordan. Alrighty. So, until next time, you can send us an email, comments at walkingdeadtv.com, or a voicemail. The voicemail line is back, but... It's a brand new number. We've got a unified HHWLOD podcast network uh, voicemail line now. So just tell us in the voicemail what show it's for, and we will make sure that, that voicemail gets to the right show and the right people so we can play it on the show. But that new number is 972-798-3830. That's 972-798-3830. And of course, if you'd rather just record an MP3 and send us a fake voicemail, you can always email that to comments at walkingdeadtv.com as well. So check out hhwlod.com for all of our great shows like Half Hour Wasted, The Long Box of Doom, The Black Box, Out Now, our brand new shows, Jersey Shore, The Ichapod, Crane Cast with Aaron North, um, Real Heroes, Really BS, there's a ton of them. If there's something geeky you're into, you know, even like uh, ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., if you like that show, as I do, we've got a podcast about it, so head over to hhwlod.com, check out all of our great shows. You can follow us on Twitter, at WDTV Podcast and at hhwlod underscore network. And so until there's no more room left in hell and dead walk the earth, remember, even in the post-apocalypse, nobody wants to eat SpaghettiOs. Have a good week, everybody. Come on. That's like caviar in the post-apocalypse. Are you You're me? a chef. What are you talking about? <laughs> Spaghettios are awful. You're right. They are. <laughs> and next week on The Walking Dead, again, you know, if you don't want to be spoiled at all, you know, tune out now. We are going to talk also about the name Brian and why that's important. But next week's episode, like we said, uh, rhymes with this week's episode, episode six, which we just talked about was live bait. Episode 7 is Dead Weight. And the brief and very vague synopsis we have from AMC is, a new and scary chapter begins to form at a camp outside the prison. 
Well, I think we could have guessed that from the previews, but at least it's a little bit more specific than normal. And on the subject of the name Brian, here's where we get into a little bit of weird territory, because I have not read the Walking Dead prose novels, although I I know the gist of at least the first one. But uh, the governor in those novels, which are, I believe, canon for the comics, it was a little bit specious of whether or not they are canon for the television show as well, because they're the backstory of the governor. Um, I would say they're probably not, although they do make, you know, slight references to things every once in a while, or things like the name Brian, which I believe was, if not intended to make the sh- make the book canon for the show, at least make it referenced as, hey, we haven't forgotten about it. So, why is that important? Well, in the Governor books, the, the Rise of the Governor, and I forget what the Woodbury one is titled, but we discover that the Governor's name is not Philip. The governor is not actually Philip Blake. The governor is Brian Blake. His brother was Philip Blake. And in fact, Penny is not even his daughter. Penny is his niece. And when his brother died in the zombie apocalypse, and I don't know exactly how that happened, but when it did happen, uh, Brian took the place of his brother, took his name, and the now zombified Penny kind of adopted her as his daughter and took over his brother's life and then later became the governor. So Brian, at least as a first name, is more of a reference to that. And if you want to have headcanon for it, if you will, you can always have it in your head that the name, the reason the governor remembered the name Brian Harriet from that uh, barn, aside from the fact that it was written there 20 times, was... You know, just like if I saw the name Jordan and a different name spray-painted on the side of a barn a bunch of times, I might take notice and remember it. He remembered it because Brian is probably his real name. It's funny, too, if you remember back when, you know, there was a long, there was that whole bit with Andrea. It's like, how come you won't tell me your real name or whatever? Then when he finally does, you know, cave in and say, say Philip, he only tells her. Right. Although, um, Milton knows it's Philip as well. But I don't mm-hmm. know that we hear anybody else say it. Right. But, I mean, so he adopted his brother's persona as the governor. So maybe that you know, gives him, like, kind of a, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a like a, almost like a psychotic distance from what he did as the leader of Woodbury. Because that wasn't Brian that did that. That was Philip. You know? That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's cutting off from that past life. And, uh, you know, you can, the only thing that really contradicts it is that family photo. Because it clearly shows him, his wife, and Penny. The only way I could see it explained away is if they said that Brian and Philip were identical twin brothers, and that that was actually the real Philip in the photo. <laughs> Otherwise, or maybe it, it was cropped. I mean, he could he could have cropped his brother out of the photo. That's a good point as well. Or cut or cut him out. I mean, it could have been a family photo where they just happened to be in that part of the photo, and he cut his brother out of it. That's possible as well. I mean, let's be honest. None of it really bothers me. It, it, it does not bother me if the book is canon for the show or not. Again, I haven't read it. Um, I'm fine believing his name is Philip. I'm fine believing his name is Brian. But for people wondering why he might pick out that name out of any name he could pick at the time when they asked him, what's your name in this episode? That could be why it was. So I think that's it for this episode. My voice is about to go and uh, I'm tired. So have a good week, everybody. Take it easy, everyone. Hey, remind me when we get to the um, spoiler section of the episode, I said on Facebook that I would mention the whole Brian and why that name was important in the spoiler section, but I don't want to forget. Okay.
And if I do and remember it while editing, I'll just fake it and put it in there, clip out a couple of your yeahs or no's and, and put them in where appropriate. Sound good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be perfect. Uh, yeah, I'll use that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely, Jordan. Indubitably. No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm.